This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 260, Margaret Schlachter on Obstacle Racing. Hey friends, remember to join the Adventure Sports Podcast membership site. In so doing, you help to support the show, which helps us a ton, and you also get amazing discounts and all sorts of guided adventures, adventure gear, outdoors gear, backpacking gear, you name it, it's there. Go check it out at members.adventuresportspodcast.com. Or go to our main website, adventuresportspodcast.com, and click the member site button. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today, I have an obstacle racer with us, Margaret Schlachter. And she started obstacle racing way back in the very beginning of the sport, and she is the expert. Matter of fact, she was in a standard corporate career and found herself kind of choking on it like some people do, and she started obstacle racing, and it changed her whole life. Now she is full-time obstacle racing-focused person. So, Margaret, we're excited to have you on the show here. Well, thanks so much for having me, Kurt. I'm I'm excited, and um, hopefully... I know I'm I'm a little bit off the deviation of some of your past guests, so hopefully I'm bringing obstacle racing to some more listeners. Oh yeah, so obstacle racing is a, is very adventurous and a ton of fun, and like you just mentioned, you're soon to be doing your first adventure race, and I think the two are kind of linked in a lot of ways. We'll get into that a little bit more, but first, more on your background. Um, you started out in high school being very athletic. You were a, an alpine ski racer, and you even attended a special school just for alpine ski racers. But then it ended up that this obstacle racing was what really caught your attention. And you're not only an early adopter, you said you were in the very first Spartan race way back in, where was that, Burlington, Vermont? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was at the Catamount Center right outside of Burlington, Vermont in, uh, I think it was May 2010. Well, then that led to your founding of Dirt in Your Skirt, which is dirtinyourskirt.com, and a whole career developed out of that. And now you are editor-in-chief at mudrunguide.com, which is the largest obstacle racing website on the planet. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thanks. <laughs> But let's rewind a little bit, and let's talk about first, what is obstacle racing? Just in case someone's out there who doesn't know what we're talking about, give us a good definition, and then we'll get your backstory. For sure. So, I mean, a lot of people, it seems like obstacle racing's kind of blown up, and it's in the national, international conscious these days, but it's basically, um, you know, you're, a lot of people relate it back to the military courses that... But I like to think of it as more of like a trail run, and then you add a whole bunch of other stuff to do along the way. And by stuff, I mean you might be going over an eight-foot wall, you might be crawling under barbed wire, you might be carrying a log for or a sandbag or a bucket of rocks, 
you might also then have to go through um, an obstacle, a rig type obstacle that's like looks like something out of American Ninja Warrior in the middle of a course. Um, you might jump over fire. So it really it brings all the elements and it has a little bit of gymnastics. It's got a little bit of the military background, even though it's not really military based. Um, but it harkens back all the way back actually to like ancient, um, ancient events. I, I was interviewed or I was, um, helping out with a book that they were looking at like almost all the way back to like ancient original Olympics had a form of obstacle racing in it. And then the cross country running, the steeplechase, all that sort of thing was kind of, you know, an early version of obstacle racing as well. So this, this idea of going through a course and having these um, obstacles put in your way, whether they are natural, like crossing a Creek or they are man-made, like going over an eight foot wall, um, it's something that we've been doing for a really long time, but it isn't until the last couple of years it's sort of become this giant industry that it is today. Okay, so I'm getting the image of Jurassic Park when someone's racing away from the dinosaurs and having to go through and under and over everything in the jungle. That's kind of what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Or, like, think about if you're, um, say you're on a farm, like, my one of my friends is a, is a large animal vet, and we joked around that her whole life she's been training uh, for obstacle racing, uh, as a vet, because, you know, if you're in a pasture with an animal, say you're in a pasture with a larger animal and it starts to, to run or chase you, you have to run to that fence and you either have to crawl under the fence, over the fence, through the fence, something to get on the other side to get away from that animal. <laughs> right. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of people can recall their childhood days. And if they grew up near the woods, like I did, probably one of their favorite things to do would be just to go running through the woods. You're dodging branches, you're crossing creeks, you're getting up the rocks and the bluffs and climbing trees and all that kind of stuff. So it just sounds like a ton of fun. It's like a flashback to the funnest stuff we used to do as kids. And, and Kurt, I love that you just said that because that is totally the way that that's what got, that's what hooked me is it's this idea of, I, it's, you know, we, we live, a lot of us live in these, very sanitary environments these days where, you know, you go from your house, you go to your car, you drive to work, you sit at a desk all day or, you know, your cubicle or whatever it is. And then you drive home, maybe you go to the gym and then it's still very sanitary environment. And all of a sudden this obstacle racing comes along and they're like, no, we're going to throw you into the mud. Literally, you are going to crawl through mud. You're going to roll in dirt. You're going to have to, like, pick up rocks. You're going to have to do all these these things that, you know, it, it's if our great-grandparents or grandparents even kind of saw it, but more great-grandparents at this point, they would just be like, you know, that's kind of like what we do every day, <laughs> right. whatever. And Or, like, you look at little kids, and they're like, that's what we do in the playground. So it's kind of this convergence of these of what our ancestors would just do like I always joke around we've got chickens in our backyard so I have to get bales of straw for their bedding and you know I'll be carrying a 90 pound um, bale of straw through our up, up our backyard and spreading the straw and it's funny because in an obstacle race you might have to carry like not necessarily a bale of straw but you're carrying like a big sandbag or something like that. And I'm like, this is the same stuff. So if you grew up on a farm or something like that, think about like 
the farm chores you did are now in a race that people pay for. Um, or in, in what we did as kids, just playing on the playground, swinging off of things, grabbing onto things, using our body in all these new different ways and just kind of connecting back with the environment. Uh, that's a lot of fun. You know, there are road runners and when you learn to run on a smooth surface, then, you know, that's a certain type of running. And then there are trail runners and the trail runners have to start you know, stepping over roots and, and getting up steps and, and navigating through slippery places and over rocks. And that's trail running, which uses a whole different set of muscles that you may not use as just a road runner. What you're talking about is going to the next level beyond that. It's like full body cross train. You got to do everything runner. Yeah. It, it, and it's it really hard. And I mean, I, I feel like every trail runner should at least try an ops race. I have some that said like, we have to go through streams or over roots and over rocks. And sometimes the trails are, a, 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 you know, like a logs falling on the trail and you just have to climb over it or under it. And they're like, but, um, but yeah, I mean, obstacles and it'll even test you some more because it's that swinging. It's that like, can you pull your body up and over something? Um, so it just kind of taxes you in a way that it's pretty unique. And I don't know of many other sports that it, is such a visceral feeling the whole time that you're doing it. Okay, so a friend of mine said he is entering a Spartan race. And in this particular race, if you fail to get over an obstacle, you have to do a bunch of burpees Yeah, as a penalty. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's the signature of Spartan race. Like, they're known for, so you have one attempt at every obstacle, which makes it so that it, it kind of is for everybody in a lot of ways, because if you can't do an obstacle, like you can't climb a rope, um, you're gonna, you, you have to go try, you have to go try it. But then if you can't do it, you, um, there's a little section over next to the obstacle and you go and you do 30 burpees, which is, um, you start in a standing position, you, um, I can tell you that it's a little bit, um, more of a flop than a full push up. So people that are like strict burpees will be like, this is not strict burpees, but you know, bear with us. This is, um, you know, the average person here, but you basically, you bring, you get into like a plank position, you bring your chest to the ground, then you kind of push yourself back up and you come back to a standing position where you do a jump and then you hands over your head and then you go back down and you do it again for 30 times, which is a, it is a total body workout. So in a way, if you fail a whole bunch of obstacles, you are doing they wear you out too. Oh yeah. Um, not only is it slowing you down, it's wearing you out. So, um, so that's what Spartan does. And then there's other events like Tough Mudder and Tough Mudder has a variety of different offerings that they have, but they're regular, just classic Tough Mudder. There's no penalties. So if you're less competitive of a person and you just want to go and experience the whole thing, you can do something like a Tough Mudder. Those are 10 to 12 miles. Same thing with Warrior Dash. Warrior Dash is, uh, I always call that the entry, more of an entry level event, but it's still fun for everybody. Um, it's a 5K. So that way, um, I always tell people if you're going to start out and you want to try something, uh, even if you're a really accomplished athlete, Go for like a shorter and shorter distance than I don't know what your friend signed up for, but <laughs> so this might not be the case for him. But um, start with like that 5k distance or that shorter distance because if you absolutely hate what you're doing, if you start out with like a 10 or 12 mile event, you've got 10 or 12 miles to go through. So even if you're like a you know marathoner, ultra marathoner, I still tell people just start with the 5k and see if you like it first and then kind of move 
from there. Yeah, good advice. Well, let's rewind a little bit. I want to get into more about your experiences doing obstacle racing. But before we do that, I want to hear your backstory. Um, You started out as a kid being very athletic, and that led you into obstacle racing. But tell us how that transpired. Yeah, so I, at a really young age, uh, I mean, I was uh, about two years old, I always tell people, my parents put skis on me, and I had the little skis that it was like you just put your boots on, and then that you strap them. They're like the plastic little skis that if anybody's been a skier or has little kids, it's like, they're like the, the, the basically they're like a Fisher Price thing. <laughs> but my parents got those for me when I was like two years old, and uh, I grew up in upstate New York and spent a lot of time in the Adirondacks, uh, Adirondack Mountains, and... I tell everybody my parents pushed me um, down a hill, and it's been all downhill since then. But um, but that's I, I mean, so I started skiing right about when I started to walk. Um, you know, I, I dabbled in other sports. I you know played tennis. I did horseback riding for like a, a minute. <laughs> um, but skiing was the thing that stuck with me. So when it came time to high school, like my family and my siblings and stuff, we kind of all come from a tradition of. Um, going to boarding schools and whatnot. And so that was an option. Luckily, that was an option for me. And I just told my parents, I'm like, I just want to ski. And my mom's like, my mom, my dad, and my stepdad and stepmom were all like, that's great that that's what you want to do, but you have to go to school too. So the compromise was going to Stratton Mountain School, which was a school for, it is still a school for alpine ski racers, snowboard competitors, and Nordic ski racers. And when I say that it's like, talented athletes come out of there. I think the last winter Olympics, we had 12 alumni Wow! in the last winter Olympics. So, I mean, it is high level, high pressure, super small school, like a hundred people. Um, and everybody is there for their sports. So think about being a division one athlete to almost a professional level athlete at 14 years old. Right. <laughs> so like we we'd get up in the morning, we'd train before breakfast, then we'd go to school during the the regular during the fall and the spring for like a regular school day, then after school we'd train for like 3 hours doing lifting, running. Um you know, we played so- I was a terrible soccer player. Like I always tell people my position was left bench. <laughs> um, that's about how how good. Um and then in the spring I played lacrosse and I was a lacrosse goalie. And, um, that I was better. I was, I was better. I was a better, better goalie than soccer player. But, um, yeah, I mean, we just, that's what we did. And then in the winter, our schedule shifted so that we, uh, got up, warmed up a little bit in the morning and had breakfast. Then we went out on the hill and we trained, um, until lunch for our sport. And then we went to school from 12 to like 1230 to like five, at night and then trained again for like 45 minutes before dinner and then dinner, study hall, bed, rinse, repeat. <laughs> wow. So that is a lot of training. Yeah, was it, was it yeah. fun or was it kind of like, what am I doing here? No, it was really fun. And I have to say like, I had incredible, um, coaches. Some were more incredible than others, but you know, and that's just, Anybody that's been coached, there's coaches you like, some are better than others. But all the coaches, I mean, I had coaches that were like ex-US ski team members, ex-Czech Czech national team. They had coached Olympians and, um, you know, various levels of coaches. But that that was their full-time job. I mean, their full-time job is coaching. 
that's what they did. And then, um, so they made it fun though. We always made, we tried to make stuff fun. I mean, it's still, it's work. Like we put in work every day, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Like we'd, we'd play like knockout before, like the, the basketball, like before as like a warm up sometimes, or we'd employ like ultimate Frisbee or something like that. So sometimes we were doing more fun stuff and then other days it'd be like, okay, today's like a lifting day. Like we're going to go in the gym and we are going to lift. And, but I like lifting and I learned at a really young age to, you know, kind of have fun with that. And, you know, we'd always have music playing. And so it was, it was fun. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, but it was, it was fun. And whenever, I don't think I realized at the time when I was doing it, how much fun it really all is because you look back and you're like, I got to go to high school and I got to train and do all this. I got to ski like every day. Like I skied like over a hundred days a year for most of my life up until a few years ago. Wow. <laughs> you know, what's so cool about this, Margaret is I just think about how almost all the rest of Americans in the world for that matter, we're trained in school to sit in a desk and to be quiet and to, to keep our hands to ourselves and not move too much or cause any distractions. And what a lot of people claim is, yeah, you're just being trained to sit in a cube farm for the rest of your life, right? But you were trained from the beginning to move and to move in big ways, and that's awesome. So how did yeah, that impact I, you when you got out into your career? So luckily, I uh, right, so I went to business school for my undergraduate um, degree, and I, I ski raced for them, and I played lacrosse for Babson College, and it's like number one entrepreneurial school in the country for like the 20-something year in a row. I just got an email, an alumni email. But um, so it's super com competitive, but in a different way than being necessarily, like I had my athletics, but school took, took most of the focus. So, but then I got out of college, I got out of college and I really didn't know what to do. I took a, I took a 36 day road trip, 10,000 mile road trip around the U S just like right decompressed on. from college. And I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Like I had played lacrosse and all of a sudden, like the lacrosse season ended like the week before I graduated. So I hadn't even thought about a job. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I left, I left uh, that school's right outside of Boston. So I left Boston and moved back into my parents' house, and I was like, I don't know what to do with my life. And then luckily, Skidmore College is in Saratoga Springs, New York, which is where I'm from originally. And um, I just talked to their lacrosse coach that I had known from before, and I said, hey, you know, I um, don't really have a job right now, and I know like the school year is just about to start with you guys, and um, uh, do you need help? Like, I was, like, not, like, trying to get a job or anything, but I was just, like, I need something to do. I'm looking for a job right now, like, a, a real, like, pu I'd done public relations all through um, high school and college as my summer job working for a PR firm, which they were actually the PR firm for the 80 Olympics. So, more, like, sports, the sports theme kind of is in my whole, is, it, like, continues to play out throughout my whole life. Um, and that's where my parents actually met, was working for the 80 Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. So, wow. again. Sports are there again, and uh, but yeah, so all of a sudden, and she's like, well, actually, we have this assistant coaching position job open, and if you take it, by the way, we're going to Australia in January, and I was like, done and done. I, well, I went home, and I said, is it okay if I like live at home for the next you know year here, and because uh, I'm not going to get paid that much, and they're like, you're going to Australia. <laughs> I take the job, take this year, figure out what you want to do, whatever. And, um, and during that year, I, I got called by one of my old ski coaches to say, Hey, do you want to coach a little bit on the side? And I had coached a little bit when I was still racing in college. 
And then from there, that snowballed into me actually going back to the high school I went to and running a uh, pre-recruiting, like a recruiting program for the school, for the for admissions, and being a dorm parent and all these different things. And then, um, so luckily, every job I've had, I did for a very short period of time work for a company that we did like corporate style moving for individuals. Like we got bids and stuff and it was super boring. And I really didn't, that wasn't really for me, but, but still, even though I was working in active schools, I still sat at a desk a lot of the day, but at least I was like somewhere where there, I was around active people. So if I was like, I need to just be outside for like 10 minutes, (laughs) like it was a little bit more understandable. So yeah, so then I ended up at Killington Mountain School after that, and I was head of admissions and college placement, and then my job was becoming way more corporate and way more like you need to sit at a desk year-round, and I just got to the point where I was 27 years old, I was almost done with my master's, and I just, like, obstacle racing, I had, that was 2012, so I'd been in obstacle racing a little bit at that point, and I was taking it seriously as an athlete, but still working full-time, and uh, was having successes. And had uh, some sponsors actually say, like, we want to sponsor you. And the first couple were like, here's some product or we'll give you product at wholesale or that sort of thing. And then eventually um, this nutrition company, Gaspari Nutrition, came to me and said, we want to sponsor you. And we want you to be like a paid athlete with us. And I was like, whoa. Because when I was in school, like all the athletics I had done up to the point was I was the kid that showed up first and stayed at the last for all the training sessions because that's about the only thing I could be first in you know (laughs) I had roommates that were on like the U.S. ski team and I was nowhere near that like I was nowhere near that and um yeah I worked hard I I was decent you know but at the school I was at because it was all such high level competitors I was like bottom of the barrel so I spent four years of my life just scraping for every every accomplishment but I think it's been good because it's just taught me like nothing's given to you you have to work for it all and um yeah I mean that was that was that was the so so and all of a sudden somebody's like we want to pay you to be an athlete with us and um so I'm, I'm always thankful to Gaspari for kind of taking that that um you know, taking that chance on me. And so in July, 2012, I just got off the hamster wheel. I quit my job and I said, okay, well, I've got enough money. Like these guys aren't paying me that much, but they're paying me enough to cover my rent. I can get food and I can get rent and food and I can cover like my bills, like my cell phone and that sort of thing. I go, this is going to be like really bare bones living, but I can do it. And, um, so I just did it. I just kind of jumped in and like, now I think back, I'm like, that was a really ballsy move to make. Oh, yeah. What but, did that feel yeah. like at the time? I have to ask, because you just said you were head of admissions at this college. I mean, that's yeah, a pretty so, good position, and you walked yeah, away from that. Yeah, so it was a boarding school, not a college, but the okay. same sort of thing. Yeah, but like, yeah, like I was in the meetings with the headmaster, like the, uh, uh, like, yeah, pretty high level for the school, like one of the highest positions you could have at the school. And I don't know, I just, I was just, Working this job that, like, they worked, like, I worked so hard at this job and that, you know, I would go, like, in the winter, I'd go, like, 21 days without a day off. And I'd be working, like, 12 to 16-hour days every day. And I would have these, and I didn't even know that these, this wasn't normal until I left the industry I was working in, the, the private education in the ski academy industry 
because I did the same thing at the school before is that I would work so hard and I would push myself to like such fatigue that my body and brain would just shut down and I would have to like lay in bed for two days and then I'd be okay for another like month or so. I always like look at it almost like steps. Like I would start out at the really high at the beginning of the the winter and then I'd have one crash and I'd come back, but I would only come back to like 75%. And then I would go again and crash and then maybe come back to like 50% of that 75%. And then like I'd have a third crash and then a spring break. So I got like a week off and then, but, um, and then the spring was supposed to be more low key and stuff. But what was happening is now my job was a year round job and I wasn't having those relief times to like recharge. Right. So I, I just was like, I can't do this. I'm 27 years old and I just can't like, I'm killing myself and like, I'm not even 30. Like I am literally killing myself because you're not supposed to just start, start like spontaneously crying because you're so tired <laughs> right. focus on your job, which I didn't know was that like, I just thought that was normal until I left it all and started creating my own sort of life for myself. And then now I look back and I'm like, whoa, like that was like, I am so grateful that all these things happened because now I was, I'm able to get out of these things that were just, you know, like you can't live that way. Nobody should have to live that way. And nobody should have to like work shouldn't give you like physical breakdowns basically. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. Hey, River Rats. You've heard nature photographer John Fielder discuss Colorado's free-flowing Yamper River on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Now get the 150 scenic and historic pictures behind the words. John's latest coffee table book guides you from its headwaters in the Flat Tops wilderness to the confluence with the Green River and Dinosaur National Monument. Visit johnfielder.com for more about the book or get your copy now at amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite independent Colorado book retailer. Once again, that book is Colorado's Yampa River, free-flowing and wild from the flat tops to the green. But I got to ask, when you walked away from it, was it really scary for you at first or was it just a big relief? Did you know you'd done the right thing? <laughs> so this is this is the, the like so when I sent the email, I remember I, it was it had been Fourth of July weekend. I told my parents like um, that I had started dating somebody, but it was a long distance relationship as well. And I told him first. And it's funny. He's actually we're actually getting married now this summer so and we right met on. congratulations this. thanks yeah we met through this whole industry like I met 
he was helping his brother out at a race and we randomly met then we ran into each other a bunch of times and now here we are um that was 2011 and now 2017 we're getting married so cool life happens in a crazy way so like i say this whole thing has changed my life but when i sent i, I remember sitting i told my parents and my, i remember my mom and stepdad were just like you've created a great place for yourself in this industry. Like you're in this private school world. You've got a great job. You're almost done with your master's. You're, you know, you're getting to the point where you're almost like, you know, at that level where you're like, whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, but I just don't want to do it. I'm like, look, you know, I've got a good education. I can always go back to it. I'm going to try this and I'm going to see what happens. So I sent the email and I was just like, I had this moment of like, holy and I you know you can put in whatever expletive you want <laughs> right you know when I said it I go when I go to work tomorrow I have quit my job I have quit my job like <laughs> you know you're just like I quit my job yeah and and it had been building to like a couple of my friends had just quit their jobs too to go off and do different things so it was like this convergence of women around me were also quitting jobs and and pursuing passions so I think that gave me some courage to do it too. And they kind of coached me through it. Um, but yeah, I went to work and I was like, I quit my job. And, uh, but then the next day, this is the crazy part. So I go into work and whatever. And then, uh, the next day I get an email through my website that says, um, from Tuttle publishing that said, do you want to turn your website into a book? Mm. Like how, like, how is that for the cosmos? Like whatever yeah. you believe Good timing, in. Huh? Yeah, like whatever you believe in telling you that like the synchronicities of like whatever you just like you're doing the right thing. Basically to me that moment was like at first I thought it was like a joke because I was like who who randomly sends through your like contact us page do you want to write a book? Like that's not how people most people write write it and then like beg, borrow and plead for like a publishing company to publish it. So I had it the opposite way and I met with um the guy at the time, who was my first editor, Bud Sperry, and he was just like, yeah, we see this obstacle racing thing up and coming, like, we want to, um, you know, have you write a book about it, we've done all these other books, and he brings, like, this pile of books to show that they're a legitimate publishing company, and they've done, like, martial arts books and all this other stuff, so, um, yeah, so they said, yeah, you want to write a book, and um, we spent a couple months doing some negotiations, and then I had three months, and uh, fall of 2012 into the early 2013, I wrote a book, and then 2014, the book came out. So, so what's the name of the book? So it's called Obstacle Race Training, and then it has the longest subtitle in the world, but it's called How to Beat Any Course, Compete Like a Champion, and Change Your Life. That wow. is a... Uh, publishers pick out the name of books which is what I learned um going through the whole process but um yeah so I wrote that and it's, it's like a coffee table book it's written for the complete beginner somebody that has never even seen the industry whatsoever and the goal of it my publisher said they wanted a book that has got tons of photos in it um they said they wanted a book that if you picked it up in an airport and you knew nothing about the industry you could have an overview of the whole kind of industry and how to get started and how to sign up for your first race. So that's what the book is. So if somebody's like a hardcore athlete, um, the photos are great. Um, some of the content they're going to be like, Oh, this is all really basic, but <laughs> right. it's meant to be basic. <laughs> like that's what my publisher was like. We want something that is written for someone that knows nothing. 
Oh, very cool. So you continued doing more and more obstacle racing, and I got to hear about some of the races and some of your accomplishments. So give us a quick rundown. Yeah, so I guess like when I quit my job and uh, like was being paid, and I was, as far as I know, and um, there might maybe there was a few people that were really similar as well, but as far as I know, I'm the first per- first female that quit their job to become a racer full time in the industry in the wow. world. Cool. So, um, so some have said that I'm the world's first professional in the, in the sport. Um, it's kind of funny that when you, I just did it cause it's what, what I wanted to do. I didn't think about like, I want to be this person or be known as this person. I was just doing what seemed right. So, so I guess I have that accolade. Um, and no way there's other racers that are way more accomplished in like podiums than I am and that sort of thing. But um, I guess I was the first one that sort of stuck my neck out and said, I'm going to be an athlete, period. Um, so so that was it. Um, otherwise, some of the notable races I've done, so like 2012, I think I did like 20-something races, and uh, I was on a podium like 50% of the time, I think, with the stats. Not too like, shabby. The, the year... The year, like, now I'm kind of like, it, it, it's been a few years now. So, um, and I was in, like, I don't think, like, it was, like, 75, 90%, something like that, something crazy number that I was in the top five, and I, like, didn't finish out of the top 15 at any of the races I did or something like that um, for that year. So, I had a lot of, I was really, um, I was a lot of seconds and a lot of thirds. <laughs> right. No win. It's kind of funny. I had, like, no wins. But a lot of seconds and thirds, which is still fine. I'm, I'm you know, take it. Um, but uh, yeah, so all of a sudden it was crazy because I was at the level in a different sport, but I was at the level that I kind of always like looked up to roommates that were like on the US ski team and stuff and um, being at this level. And I remember when I quit my job, the, the uh, headmaster of the school, so like the head of the school was like, how are you going to do anything? Like, this is, this is going to be like the worst decision you've ever made in your life. <laughs> and you're going to get that. Absolutely. Yeah. When you, when you walk away from what everybody else thinks has to be done. Oh yeah. I mean, I had somebody online in some forum somewhere call me batch crazy. <laughs> uh, I don't, I like, I don't know the person, whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts now because that school has actually done some obstacle racing thing with the things with the kids for orientation now. So I'm like, like part of me wants to go see, see, <laughs> but, but I mean, this is all, this is well before TV, well before like where it is now. And it was mostly just, yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was that, but otherwise, you know, I've been able to do a lot of really interesting races. Like uh, I was at the very first world's toughest matter, which is a 24 hour, um, obstacle race. And, uh, that year it was in December in New Jersey which is a brilliant idea. Anybody can tell you that. Um, so yeah, it's freezing. Like we were running in wetsuits for 24 hours and now this race, like when, and nobody thought like that you could even run in a wetsuit for 24 hours. Like people were like, you cannot do it. You'll die. (laughs) Like, Like more traditional athletes, like the triathletes and stuff would be like, no, you can't do that. Well, you can, it's, uh, there's a few things you have to take into precautions and stuff and, put lube in different places and whatnot. So chafing, but, um, you can, and that's the only way you can get through a 24 hour obstacle race where you're breaking through water that's been iced over. Cause it's so cold. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so I made it, um, I made it 
so that year it was the rules were different than they are now, but I made it to about 7 a.m. and the race ended at 10 a.m. and I had just really extreme hypothermia and um, I never went to the hospital. I probably should have looking back. Um, I don't know how, how familiar Kurt you are with like um, different stages of hypothermia and whatnot. Oh, yeah. We've talked about yeah. it a lot on the show. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So when I say an after drop, people will know what that, what that, what I'm talking about. No, tell us what an after drop okay. is. Okay. So like the after drop is, so like when you, you know, you get hypothermic or whatever. And I was, um, I was number one, I was hallucinating, uh, things that weren't there. Like they had these tires down on this, uh, it was on asphalt, but I thought it was water in the tires and it was an unknown depth. <laughs> you laugh at it now, but I had to step on the tires, not in the tires. Cause if I stepped in the tires, I was going to fall into the abyss of the water. Who knows? This is like the weird things that go through. I, I th- thought I saw an old woman in the woods and there, there was nobody there. I can tell you for a fact, there was no one there. Right. Um, they had these things they called trench warfare, which is basically they had dug these trenches and there was a little bit of water in them. Um, and then they had covered them with like plywood. So there was dark in them. Well, in the middle of the night when we were going through them, um, I thought I heard, I thought I was in World War II. And I don't know why World War II, uh, but I thought I heard gunshots like above me. I thought it was like, again, nothing like that was actually happening in real life. But this is so, and it was about with the wind chill, I've been told it was about 16 degrees. And we were running through, and luckily I was running with two other racers um, pretty much for the whole night. But I got to a point where I just wanted to lay down and take a nap at like 5, 6 in the morning. I just wanted to take a nap outside, cold, wet. Right. I mean, that's that's like, yeah, not, not a good idea. So we stopped in a, in a med tent that was really close and uh, went in there. They wrapped me in like a burrito, like space blanket, you know, thing to work. I started uncontrollably shaking, uncontrollably shivering. And uh, my whole body had puffed up and uh, not really in a good way. And I pretty much knew at that point, like, I was done racing. Like, I was done, done. And uh, so I got back to work, and this is where the after drop comes in. So the after drop is kind of how long it takes you to warm back up in your body to get, like, totally back to normal. Um, I remember I got back to school I was working at, and – I lived at the school as well as a dorm parent. And somebody said, you look green right now when I got back. <laughs> no, I got that's back not good. The race, yeah, the race ended on Saturday, and this is Monday now. And they're like, you look green. You look really bad. Like, people were like, you don't, you look really bad. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really, I think I'm just tired and stuff. Like, I, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I feel pretty much fine. But what would happen is I'd sit in my office, which is totally normal, heated, normal place, um, for five days after the race and randomly I would have start shivering and have to put on a coat. So it took me over five days to be able to control my body heat effectively again. Okay. So I have to ask this next question then. Yeah. Why do it? A lot of people hear this story and they say, I don't sound like fun. Yeah. So number one, I had no idea going into that was no, that was my first um, that was my first 24 hour race I'd ever done in my life. Um, like I said, I was a ski racer and I was a lacrosse goalie. I was not an endurance athlete. Um, so leading up to that whole event, like, uh, that was in 2011, I got on like a crazy running schedule. I ran my first ultra, 
leading up to it to train for it and spent a lot of times. I lived on Killington, Vermont, like right on the mountain. Like I was less than a mile from hopping onto the trails. Cool. Um, so I literally every morning, sometimes twice a day, I would just be on the mountain. I would, I know every inch of that ski resort intimately and all the mountains around intimately. Like we know each other really well and crazy stuff has happened out there when it was just me myself and I at all hours of the day and night uh losing you know headlamps going out all that sort of stuff so I think honestly the leading up to it and all of that and all the training was kind of you know the race itself that's like you put yourself into an extreme situation and that was a pretty extreme situation but I think the reason that people do all these, and I think even the short little like 5K, five-mile ones, it's just it, – we get so complacent in life, and it's so easy to get into a schedule that it's like you take – and I just finished um, the Wim Hof method, um, and I just interviewed him recently, um, and he holds like 26 world records for cold and stuff like that, and he's like changing science and all these crazy things, so – if you don't know who he is, I, I recommend like Googling him and hopefully you listen to the episode I did with him. But um, we get, and he talks about how like we live in this 70 like degree world now. Like we heat our house, it's 70 degrees. We, um, in the summer, we turn the AC on, like we get in the car, we turn the AC. We never expose ourselves to these extremes anymore. We sit on couches and they're super comfy, but like we never sit on the ground and 50% of the world sits on the ground. And like this Western side, we've created this world that we are always comfortable. And I think the draw in general of these obstacle races, and I think it was for me as well, is just, it gets you out of your comfort zone. And for me, it just shakes, it kind of shakes you up a little bit. You know, it just gives you that like, oh, you know, like there's more to life than like, I don't know, whatever crappy show is on television again (laughs) tonight like there is more like get outside and realize there's more to it and you know we're we're happy we're healthier human beings when we connect with the earth and we connect with things and it's like like those are normal it's not normal to have your life be 70 degrees and climate controlled and it light all 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 the time because we have electricity right no good answer i like it i think people (laughs) mistake comfort for happiness somehow and that kind of gets screwed around in our heads because what our bodies really need to get stronger or to be more capable in general is to be challenged you got to go out and make it hurt a little bit right yeah and you know and i'll say like there's another race too that i did called survival run and it's i was just now i work with them but the first year they did it i ran it and it's in nicaragua and the race director, Josue Stevens, he's created a whole race on this island. Now, there's also one in Australia, and there's going to be one in Canada this year, so it's extending out some. But the idea of the race is it's a 70-ish kilometer race. Um, it's a marked course, so it's not an adventure race. It's not really an obstacle race either. It's its own thing. Um, but what they do is they give you a list of stuff you need to bring with you, And it's nothing like really all that crazy. Like it'll be like a machete you have to carry with you. You have to carry, um, you know, there's no aid stations. So you have to carry either like a water filtration with you or you have to, you have to carry money and you can buy stuff from the local little stores and stuff on the Island and whatnot. Um, 
and then a few other like random things that'll be used, but all along the way, so you're running or whatnot. And then along the way you have these tasks you have to do. Now, every task that you have to do is based on the Island culture there. So like, it's super cool. So like when I did the race, we had to gather and carry 45 pounds of this like firewood driftwood. I mean, it's not like American nicely chopped firewood. It is like sticks and branches firewood. And I remember carrying it and like struggling with it or whatnot. And then there's like, we passed this like older woman. And by older, I mean, she's probably in her like seventies carrying a bundle, like twice the size of ours. (laughs) And she's on her cell phone talking. I mean, like, like, whoa, you have these moments like, whoa. Okay. So, um, but it's funny that we're like artificial in Western side, we're artificially creating these like challenges for ourselves. But what's neat about that race and like this past year, when I was there covering it, one of the things the racers had to do was there's a bunch of the villages don't have water in them. So the racers had to go and they're given a five gallon bucket and they had to go fill the bucket with this well. And it's a hand crank well with a wheel and like a piece of rope and some PVC pipe coming out of it. And they would fill, they filled up their, their buckets, they put a lid on it, and they carried it up, uh, about three kilometers up to a village. And the, the water got left for the village. But um, the people, like, and, I, and I've been on the island a bunch, and the people, what they do is those villages that don't have water, they go down on their horses or ride their bikes. Most don't walk. But that's that's for the race, you know? <laughs> um, right. But they go down every day. And you'll see them with, like, a couple jugs like big jugs and they're filling, they're filling up the, from the well and that's their water. That's their water for the day. And they do every day. So, um, so I mean that race, um, they, they do a whole system where the metal is actually says I did not fail. So it's four pieces to get the complete metal. And the way they give it out is fail. I did not. So I have an, so I have an I and a fail. I think I raced about 50 kilometers <laughs> that year. Um, I got to a point where uh, we had to carry this like 20 plus foot long bamboo pole up a the side of one of the volcanoes, up a trail, which uh, is a regular hiking trail, not a super highway made to carry a 20 something foot bamboo pole. So that added another little fun challenge. But the people there use these bamboo poles to get up, climb up into the plantain trees. Mm. and they retrieve the plant and they cut down the plantains and that's how they still a lot of them harvest plantains so we had to do it where we had to client carry it kind of up the volcano again for the race so some of this stuff is you know it's made a little different for a race but um and then we had to climb into this tree and i just could not climb up this pole i could not climb i tried for 45 minutes and then ended up getting these weird thorns in my calf that ended up making my calf turn into a baseball. Oh no. Um, so, so just one of those things that happens, you know, whatever, but, um, still one of my most memorable race experiences was, was that, and just like, and I think that's been the coolest thing about the whole last, like the journey I've been on is I've been able to go to some of these events that are the, those are the more extreme ones, obviously like, but then I've done other events where I worked with a guy and he was, it was through Spartan race. And I used to live, from their original headquarters, I used to live five miles away. So I know Joe DeSeno, the founder, really well. I actually coached his kids in skiing. 
So, um, and taught them swimming lessons. So know him really well. And he had this guy there that at one point weighed 696 pounds. He came to Vermont and he, uh, weighed over 400 pounds and he came there for five months to do basically like a real life biggest loser. And, um, so stuff happened. It's a really long story, but basically I ended up working with him the last two months and pretty much training him. We did one-on-one. He had to walk to my house five miles every day. Then we would do a training session and it'd be like intervals or whatever. It it varied. And then um, he had to walk home and that was what he had to do for training. Uh, But then we'd go to some races together and we'd go do the races together. Now I'd race competitively on Saturday and finish however I finished. And then on Sunday, sometimes I'd go out and race with him and we would, it would take us sometimes like three or four times as long as it took me the day before. But, um, you know, he was like, 300 pounds doing these events and um I got just as much out of those in a totally different way and watching him and working with someone who had been so extremely obese and learning all the mental side that he had um and that other people have that you know are, are so obese and then they're losing this weight but they still like he didn't know that he could jump like a, a like a six inch jump he was like I can't do that I'll break my bones I'm like, well, maybe when you're 700 pounds, you would break your bones, (laughs) Right. but you now weigh like 300 pounds, which is still a big guy, but you're like, you're half the person you were before you can jump. And it took us about a week and a half to get the mental side through of like jumping that like little, not, I mean, probably not even six. He jumped from like a curb. Like that's what the jump was. So it wasn't even six inches. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. The Bearline Plus by 180 Tech is the handiest Bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical Bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bearline Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other Bearlines. Not only does the Bearline Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie-downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bearline Plus at 180tech.com or retailers near you.
what was it that inspired him to go through this complete life-changing season? Uh, I mean, that's amazing. It's an amazing story, and it's inspiration. Yeah. His goal was originally to do a 5K every month for a year to kind of mm. help with the lose weight with the gastric bypass type surgery. And I forget which one he was. You know, there's a whole bunch now, so I can't remember exactly which one he had. Yeah, so he had that. And then one of his coworkers said, do a Spartan race. And he thought that he's from Atlanta. He thought it just meant a 5K in Sparta, Georgia. Oh. Yeah. So he did this thing and he was like the last one there, last one off the course. And uh, he happened to, uh, one of the guys that worked for the company gave him a ride back and somehow a conversation struck up. And next thing you know, like Comcast granted him a five month leave of absence to go up and do this thing. And, you know, like all these things that happened in his life around then too, that like made it like time for a change. So he came up and, Gosh, I mean, he was like almost like a guinea pig in a lot of ways. <laughs> like, like I think back and I'm like, I cannot believe you did this. But um, yeah, he got down to 265 pounds by the end of it with over 50 pounds of skin hanging. It was crazy. Um, and ended up doing a Spartan Race Beast, which was almost a 15-mile race that year on Killington, Vermont. It took him, I think, 13 hours, but he did it. Right on. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, like life has happened. He spent years trying to deal with insurance companies to get that, that skin removed and never had it successful. So he's gained, uh, some of that weight back now, but, um, but yeah, I still keep in touch with him and, and, and stuff. So, so, I mean, it's, it's great and he could do it again if he wants to. It's, you know, it's like, we all have to come that, that will comes from inside of us. So, um, well, I'm kind of catching a common theme here, and that theme is that you found a sport that you loved, you found a challenge or a goal, and it was life-changing. It was for you, it was for your friend here, and I'll bet you could list dozens or hundreds more people that you've encountered along the way. Yeah, and I think the, the general, and I it totally has, and I think the general theme is is that and it doesn't have to be obstacle racing. I think a lot of your guests probably say the same thing. Like they found whatever their passion was is that you find something and it just kind of shakes you out of that complacency right. that we can, can so easily get in. For me, it was obstacle racing. Um, and then from there, you know, at this point I've cultivated a career around the industry that I'm not racing really that much anymore. Um, now I pretty much race to go tell a story or go write a, write an article. But, um, but I've kind of cultivated this whole life that started from a decision to like, Oh, let's go try this thing randomly, like on a whim, really. (laughs) In 2010 and 2017. Now, like editor in chief of mud run guide, like, you know, we've got like 30 contributors and like managing all of them and, um, you know, working with our team and our social media person and, um, you know, traveling the world now, not as much racing, but now it's like, as we talked about before we started recording, like when I was in Nicaragua this year, that was a 40 hour work day, I guess days, but <laughs> it seemed all like one day. Um, but you know, driving around now it's like, I've got like a chess pack on that has like ready to do Facebook live to like update the world of what's going on in some of these events. And, um, so life's changed a little bit. So but it's 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 now challenging in a totally different way because the the you know I went from it being about me I think and about me like getting on a podium and 
you know, chasing those dreams that I'd had and being that, that like professional athlete and being that sponsored athlete and all that sort of stuff to now I'm telling the story for other people. That's cool. Yeah. Like it's really cool to me. Like, and I get just as much pleasure and enjoyment out of following these races and like telling the story of the races as I do like competing myself. Sure. Well, speaking of, you've got a lot going on that we need to let our listeners know about. And the reason is because, you know, we've, we've caught snippets about what this lifestyle is like and what these races are and all that sort of stuff. But how can people learn more? So you have dirtinyourskirt.com. That's your personal blog, right? Yep. That's my personal blog. And we're also Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram. It's all branded the same dirt in your skirt. So you can find stuff there. Um, or you can go to most, if you want to learn about obstacle racing stuff or like find races around you, um, like mud run guide, we've got discount codes as well. So like if you want to try out a race and maybe save a few bucks as well, or like read editorials or the news or, um, what to do's and all that sort of stuff. Uh, mud run guide is the best place to find all of that these days. Cause, um, I think I've been working for them for two and a half years. I've written almost 500 articles for them. Wow. So, um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so head over there. We do a lot, like I do video interviews with people. Um, you know, our contributors are awesome. They give reviews of races, they write op-eds, they put training stuff, gear reviews, all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's there. Um, you can pick up my book, my books available on, you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, pretty much anywhere books are sold. I think you can find it. And your book is Um, obstacle race training. Give us that subtitle again. It's obstacle race training, how to beat any course, compete like a champion and change your life. Um, and then, um, yeah, those are the best ways kind of to keep up. Um, sometimes my Instagram feed is, uh, a little bit crazy because we've got like an urban farm in our backyard. So you might see pictures of like our baby chicks or like my dog. (laughs) That's Um, fun. Um, or you might end up seeing pictures of like, you know, different stuff that we're up to. I'm a huge foodie, like, so you might see like whatever I'm cooking or whatever as well. So, so it's, 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 uh, that's really me. Um, (laughs) but, but yeah, I encourage people. And then, uh, I've got my podcast now as well. That's called dirt in your skirt and that's available on iTunes, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all those, all those places you can find that too. And, um, there I interview pretty much. Uh, I interview women and every once in a while a male, but mostly women that are getting out there, um, kind of pushing themselves. And my ethos are explore, conquer, and inspire. And the women are, whether they're an author, a professional athlete, a researcher, whatever, they're um, kind of adhering to one of those ethos. So that's um, that's about it. And I'm not that's sure this is coming out. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. So let me let me recap that for our listeners cuz they're driving down the road and they're going to forget and they can't yeah. write and drive. So I'm <laughs> going to go one more time. Dirtinyourskirt.com. That's where you can see your blog and connect with your podcast, which is Dirt in Your Skirt. There is let's see, the mudrunguide.com and your book Obstacle Race Training. What did I miss? Yep. Um no, you got it all there. You, you, you have it all, and uh, like I said at the top of the show is, uh, depending when this comes out, you can, uh, I'll probably put some Instagrams up, and there's going to be an article on Mud Run Guide about it after the fact, but taking on my first six-hour adventure race this weekend in California, 
um, in San Luis Obispo, and it's called uh, All Out Adventures or All Out Events, um, put on this race. So I will be kayaking, mountain biking, and um, some rappelling and hiking and whatever else the race has, which I've done all three of those things separately. But this is my first adventure race, and I have no aspirations of glory. I just um, want to get through it and have fun and just go experience something and then hopefully share kind of the adventure racing world with the obstacle racing world to see for those people that are, want to do that next step. And the same thing I feel about trail running. It's like we've written some other stuff on Mud Run Guide. Like if you want to do that next step, there's like you don't have to just do one thing. Sure. So. Well, so. very cool. Well, Margaret, we've run out of time. The clock got us, and I think we could go yeah. another hour easily. There's so much here, but thank you for your time today, and thank you so much for sharing what this obstacle racing world is with our listeners. I think it's going to be really appealing to people out there. Well, thanks so much, Kurt, for having me. It's been fun, and I, as you can tell, and hopefully the listeners can tell, I love just sharing sharing what I've learned and hopefully um, you know, encourage some people to go out and just give it a try, see if they like it. Yeah, and I also want to congratulate you on building a life that you can really sink your teeth into. Good for you. That's awesome. Thanks. It's uh, it's never. It's an evolving process, and that's one thing I will say is that it's never. It's never done. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No doubt. And for all of our listeners out there, as always, get out there and have some fun. Hey, you know you love the show. Please do tell your friends about it. It makes a world of difference for us, and we really appreciate it. Thank you, and have a great day. Hey.